Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We are so glad you're here. My name is Pastor Matt, and I have the joy and honor of being the campus pastor here in Halstead, and it is a great day. Now, we are jumping in to week one of our series, I Can't Believe, and we're looking at kind of the four big objections to faith, uh, maybe that you've walked through yourself, maybe you're holding one of these objections currently, or you know somebody who's holding one of these objections, and say, you know, I have all of these reasons why I can't believe in Jesus. And so what we want to do over the next couple of weeks is really just um, unpack what Jesus would say to these very objections, because they're not new, um, whatever objections we have towards faith, Jesus has pretty much answered all of them already with people that have had them in the past. And so we're going to dive into the scriptures and see what uh, the Lord would have to say about those things. But my prayer this, over this series is this. If you don't know Jesus, I'm praying that, that the Lord would open your eyes and you would see the goodness of God in Jesus himself and you would have just a burning desire to know him and walk in a relationship with him. I, I said to the first service, so I'll say it to be fair to you guys, I'm praying that if you don't know Jesus that he would disturb your sleep and, and bring you to a knowledge of him. I love you enough that you would lose a couple hours of sleep to know the greatest gift in, in Jesus, that no objection really can withstand his Goodness. My prayer also is for those of us who do know Jesus or have been around church for a long time, that this series would reignite in you um, a passion to know and walk with in, in intimacy and nearness with God, um, that you would not be dull to his glory, but it would be new and fresh. You know, have you ever been around something very beautiful and it just kind of over time grows dull to you? I went on a vacation to Hawaii many, many years ago and uh, I was talking with some of the locals and just about how gorgeous it was and they said, yeah. I guess when you see it every day, it just grows dull. And I thought, how does this grow dull to you? Um, and yet, so often, we've been around Jesus long enough that it can just grow dull. And so my prayer is that the beauty of Jesus would become fresh to us uh, this morning. The whole, we're going to be looking at the book of John as we walk through this. And John kind of ends his book, uh, as the, the narrative of Jesus, the gospel of John. Um, he ends it with this statement as to why he wrote everything he wrote in the book of John. He said this, John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written, the stories talking about Jesus, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Everything written in the book is so that you and I would be able to see our objections to faith, have them answered in Jesus, and find faith and salvation in him. Anybody familiar with uh, a gospel track? You know what I'm talking about when I say a gospel track? Show of hands. We're going to do lots of hand raising. Yeah, some gospel tracks. All right. Now, the gospel tracks, I really genuinely believe, started with a desire to fulfill this, to put the truth and information in people's hands that they could know who Jesus was and believe in him. But if you've ever been around church for the last 20, 30 years, or maybe you've been handed one of these, um, some of them got a little sideways on us. Like there's this track here. Uh, the $10 bill that you were trained to leave for your waitress on the table or your waiter on the table, so they turn it over and it says, disappointed. You won't be if you let Jesus Christ come into your heart. Let me tell you, if you have one of these, I will come to your house and I will burn it, okay? All this says is that you're a cheap person at the restaurant, all right? This isn't a way to introduce to Jesus, all right? There's these tickets, got your ticket. Uh, next one here. Then there was these really deluxe ones. They call them chick tracks. Uh, they had multi-pages, and they were basically a scare tactic covered in demons. Um, this was actually my first introduction to a gospel track. I was walking to a BC Iceman's game as a kid. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, it's before the senators, before, right? It's the old name. Um, and somebody handed me one of these as like a six-year-old walking across the street. And I'll tell you what, 
It got me scared. It didn't, it didn't point me to Jesus, but it got me scared. Then there's my least favorite of all, Uncle Jesus. <laughs> Nothing stirs more mixed emotions of hatred in my heart than Uncle Sam and Jesus being married to the same person. I just can't, I can't abide, all right? And then the most recent one is COVID. All right, because we need more publications on COVID and fear right now. So what happened really as they started to move, there's some really good ones out there. I don't want to harp on all of them, but they started to move away from the goodness of Jesus and onto scare tactics, onto gimmicks. Jesus is so much more than a gimmick. He's so much more than a scare tactic. He's so much more than a get out of a hell free card, right? But what happened at the end of these is you were trained to use them, and, and I was even trained to use these in high school, was, um, you know, these were really the introvert's dream. If you hated talking to people, you went to the tracks, right? Because you could just leave one on the back of the bathroom stall for the next person to come in and call it evangelism, right? Well, I left one there. Um, or this is going to date uh, some of us a little bit. There was the tactic where you take the track and you put it in the blockbuster, and you close the blockbuster, and you send it back to so the next person that gets it. Anybody do that? Right? Nobody's going to admit to that one, all right? <laughs> or you give it to the toll booth attendant, to give it to the person behind you. But see, we were trained to just use these things rather than have conversations. Um, but if you did them well, they would lead to conversations where you'd talk about Bible reading and prayer, um, and you'd put an emphasis on church attendance, and you'd, at the end, if somebody wanted to believe in Jesus, you'd pray a prayer like this. Now that you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you are saved forever. You are guaranteed to go to heaven. He promises never to leave you or forsake you. No one can pluck you out of your Father's hand. So from here on out, you are saved no matter what. Welcome to the family of God. Now, these things were okay. It'd be a prayer. But then what would happen is this person would pray, believe they're saved, then walk away having no real understanding what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And then some of these prayers got really sideways. These were some of them. God, I'm pretty rotten. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. So I invite Jesus into my heart. Thanks for that. Amen. Congratulations. Three stars. Right? Like, this is not saving faith. This is not the gospel presented. It has nothing to do with a repentance of sin or an acknowledgement of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But here's the tragedy of this. Barna did a study in 2011 that 50% of Americans say they've prayed that prayer or a version of the prayer and subsequently believe they're going to heaven. But what the study showed further was that half of them have no regular church attendance. Half of them believe the Bible is absolutely wrong on key issues. And over two-thirds of them have a lifestyle that's no different than those outside of the Christian faith. So what that tells me when I read that is there's a lot of people who, because they pray to prayer, believe they know Jesus. What we're going to find as we look through the Bible is that Jesus is going to talk often and plainly about this group of people. People who claim to know Jesus but have only met religion. Claim to understand who God is but have only met a figment of who God is. See, the tragedy in what we're talking about today is the religiously immunized. Those who have just enough. You know how immunizations work. We don't have to talk about that. Just enough, as most of them would, with a dead, impotent version of the virus to inject it into your body to keep you from getting any bits of the real thing. See, what Jesus is going to address is a whole group of people who have been religiously immunized into believing that they have found Jesus when, in fact, they have not found Jesus at all. John chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus is going to address how he's dealing with this group of people. 
Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. What we see here is a group of people who were temporarily impressed by the signs Jesus was performing. So they followed along, hoping maybe they'd get a miracle done for them. I mean, hey, who wouldn't want that bum knee fixed? Or who wouldn't want food given to you for the rest of your life? So they start following Jesus. But something so interesting here is you could say, in a sense, that Jesus, or they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. See, Jesus saw past their short-term following and saw a carnal and a convenient belief that wasn't actually a genuine relationship or a genuine pursuit of relationship with God. And so he walks away because he knew they weren't genuine in their faith. You see this also uh, in, in Matthew, Jesus referring to the same group of people. Let's go and throw this up here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Jesus is not talking about irreligious pagans or people far from God or agnostics. He's talking about deeply devouted religious people who probably went on mission trips, who probably uh, went to Bible study, who probably prayed prayers. And he says something so interesting here in this last sentence. He says, I never knew you. The word here, the Greek word here, what it really means is I never knew you in a personal, relational connection. You may have known about me, but I didn't know you in the sense that you understood really in a deep relation who I am. See, the question that's raised in, in chapter two here really is what kind of belief saves? Because if there's a superficial belief that doesn't lead to salvation, according to what Jesus just said, there's many. See, we hear the stats of 50% of Americans praying that prayer, but not having any significant life change to show for it. And what many people will say, well, see, Christians are hypocrites. I read those stats and say, there's a lot of people who think they're Christians who just haven't met Jesus. There's a lot of people who've been religiously immunized enough that they don't think they need repentance and they don't think they really need a savior. So the question is, what kind of belief saves? Well, the good news is, um, Jesus answers that question for us in the very next verse. John chapter 3, verse 1. Go ahead and turn with me there, and we're going to see Jesus' answer to the problem. Now, there was a Pharisee. Now, if you don't know what a Pharisee means, a Pharisee is a high religious ruler, somebody who understood religion very, very well, um, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night because he's embarrassed, basically, that people would find him coming to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, what's interesting as you read through this is a couple things. One, Nicodemus comes at night because he doesn't want his religious crowd to know that he's asking questions. They don't want him to maybe, he doesn't want them to find out that he's unsettled with his religion or that maybe everybody thought I was in, but maybe I'm not in, right? So there's some shame in there for him already. And he asked Jesus, basically, um, I know that there's something about you. 
I'm missing something in this religious world. Um, there's some hole that's, that's not being filled, and I see you doing things that don't make sense. Are, are you God? And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't really answer that question. What he says is, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What he's saying is, you can't understand this, Nicodemus, because you're only seeing things in the physical. You're missing the spiritual element that only a God who resurrects you is going to be able to reveal this to you. And so um, Nicodemus hears this thing, being born again, and asks the same question you would ask if you heard this for the first time. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus is like, wait a minute. Jesus, I'm not even going to finish this sentence because that, that doesn't even work. See, he's only thinking in an earthly, carnal perspective, which is what the religious environment really teaches us to do. Do good works, balance the scales, work out your salvation, right? There's all of these things. And Jesus answers with this. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless you are born of water and the Spirit. Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, is going to give him two marks of saving faith. He says, Nicodemus, I, I know you have that angst. It's the same angst that you feel, perhaps, as you come into church and you, you come and you sit and you listen, and then you leave, and, and then on Tuesday afternoon, uh, it doesn't seem to have filled you up enough, and so there's some desire inside of you that says there must be more. And so what happens with that more feeling is you choose to go one of two places. You choose to come to the Lord and have him fill that. But if you've not met Jesus, you've only met religion, that feels empty. Maybe you feel disappointed with God, but really it's not God you've met, but just church. Or you choose to go to sin. That's where our sin comes in because there's a craving and a desire for more that we can't satisfy. And so we end up going down all of these paths towards sin and destructive behaviors. So what he's saying to Nicodemus is that tension is a need for salvation. And if you want to know what that looks like, Nicodemus, there's two marks of what your life will look like. The first mark is that there will be a new birth. What he meant by that really was that there will be a dying to the old self. The old man, those old desires, the things you used to chase to try to satisfy that, there will be a death to those things and you will be reborn with new desires. Jeremiah says this. He says, I'll, give you, I'll take your heart of stone and give you a living heart. Basically, you will be reborn to understand things that you could never understand before. What Jesus is saying, born of water and spirit. It would be something new done inside of you. If you've committed your life to Jesus, you know what that moment feels like. It's where the, the weight of your bones and the crushing weight of your sin just gets lifted off of you and you find freedom. It's a new birth that you never thought was possible. See, but here's the thing and why new birth is so important is because sin really Diz, it did and does damage on us. It is destroying us. J.D. Greer, pastor and author, puts it this way. Sin did not knock us down to God's JV team, right? It didn't make us a lesser Christian. It didn't put us on probation or put us on a slower track to getting our mansions in heaven. Sin wiped us out. The choices we made to, to find satisfaction in things other than God didn't knock us down to JV team. It literally destroyed us. And the problem where the religiously immunized is that we'll begin to try to tip the scales. Counterbalance good church attendance, being a good person, not swearing, not drinking, right? Trying to balance these scales. The problem is that the weight of our sin is far too great to tip those scales back ever. Far too great. 
It's like you're walking through the woods later today. And say you're walking through the woods and you find a snake. How many of you, when you see that snake, you're just going to turn and run away without looking? All right? It's the honesty hour. All right. How many of you are going to look at the snake, determine what it is, and then determine whether you should run away or not? All right? All right? If it's a garter snake, you know, probably all right. If it's a rattlesnake, you might want to consider alternative options. All right? But if you were standing there in the woods and something bit you in the ankle and you look down and you evaluate the snake, if it's a garter snake, you're probably all right. right? Just clean it up, put some Brillo pad and a little you know, Dawn soap on there. This is not medical advice. Don't take it. <laughs> all right? But you should be fine. It's not poisonous. You'll, you'll be all right. But if you look down and there's a ring neck or a water moccasin or um, a rattlesnake that spits you, you better act quickly. Either you're probably going to lose a limb or maybe even die. So you have to make some quick, aggressive choices. So the thing is with sin is that it's far worse than any rattlesnake you could ever imagine. But yet what can happen is if we're around religion enough, we can think we have just enough of the anti-venom that that sin's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a problem. I'll just deal with it later. You know what? I'm kind of a good person, so maybe the venom won't kill me after all, right? Like there's no possible way we would think that would happen with the venom. And I think the problem is we've begun to minimize sin. We've begun to see it as a garter snake when it is far, far worse. And so we make decisions and then we're surprised when it begins to destroy us. What's interesting is this is actually the whole narrative where Jesus is going to set up his conversation with Nicodemus because he's going to pull from the Old Testament where when the Old Testament nation, excuse me, Old Testament ancient people of Israel, that's easy for me to say sometimes, was coming out of slavery. Um, God was trying to teach them what the, the consequences of sin were. They were uneducated and unaware of what sin really was and what it did to them. And so they began to rebel against God and say, we don't want you. We don't want to follow you. Uh, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to serve the other gods. It was more convenient. It was easier, whatever. It, really what it is is a picture of the human heart. Right? We want to go back to our enslavement to sin, even if it destroyed us because it's what we know. And so um, God says, okay, well, here's the consequences of those. And he sent a huge group of vipers into the camp of the Israelites, and the vipers just began to bite people and, and just start causing havoc across the camp. And people are screaming and writhing with pain, but God, in his mercy, said, here's the consequences of sin, which is really a picture of all of the consequences of our sin. But here is my mercy. So he says, Moses, the leader of the people, go get a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and run that pole up to the top of the mountain, and whoever would look up at the serpent will live. Essentially, if you would, in faith, look up at the serpent on the pole, the venom would be taken from you and you'd be fine. And so Moses does this. He puts it on the pole. He runs up there, sets the pole, and those who look up are spared. What's interesting is this is where Jesus goes with Nicodemus. Verse 14, let's jump down a few verses. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you and I, Nicodemus, you, despite your religious motions and despite what you think, you have been bit with the venom of death. 
Your sin has caused death in you. But in the same way that Moses put up on the pole a bronze serpent, Jesus will be lifted up on a pole that we call the cross on top of a hill. And anyone who would look up would be spared the venom of death. The, the viper that was intended for you instead bit Jesus. And so now you live. What kind of trade-off is that? I mean, after all of my rebellion, all of my sin, all of the evil I've thought, all I have to do is look upon the Savior on the cross and he takes the venom of death that will destroy me? Yes, please. The problem is there's many hearts who hear that today and go, meh, meh. He just doesn't look that great. doesn't look that good. It's because you don't realize how bad your sin is. Because I don't realize how bad my sin. Our failure to see who Jesus is on the cross is really a failure to see who we are in need. He won't look like the great redeemer who went to hell to buy back your, the deed of your life from Satan. He'll just look like a nice guy with good morals. It's when we come to the place of brokenness and we see the destruction around us, we go, I need to look up and be saved. See, Paul, referring to this, says this in 2 Corinthians. God made him, being Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You got your place traded. That's good news. And you know what? There's nothing you could do to earn it. There's nothing you could do to coerce God to change places with you. He already did it, and he did it willingly because he loves you. And that's where the famous verse that we all could probably quote, Christian or not, comes in the context of, of this conversation with Nicodemus, verse 16, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That news isn't for people who think they're good. That news is for people who know they've been bitten by the snake, who know they need Jesus says he willingly gave out of love in his heart for you. See, there's no shame before the cross because the reality is we've all been bitten. We all are equally loved, adored, and redeemed. See, that's good news. As he's talking to Nicodemus, one of the things that comes out of this, that passage we just read is that the second mark of saving faith is going to be a new life. That when you look up, and you see the Savior on the pole for you in your place, you are not going to walk away from that moment the same. You're not going to walk around like you still have the venom in your bones. You're not going to walk around wailing and crying. You will be set free, as Jesus says. See, this is a new life in us. How do you know if that new life is there? Simply this, you're changing. You're changing. The things that used to be true of you aren't true anymore. You used to be consumed by lust, by greed, by anger, by bitterness, by jealousy. You used to consume your mind. When you look to Jesus and he takes that from us and for us, begins to give us a new life and a new spirit. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and pull the harp off the side of your bed and string beautiful instruments of songs and praise to Jesus and never get angry, see, because the venom was so deep inside of us that not only did he have to go to hell to buy us back, but then we're going to spend the whole rest of our life pulling the venom out of our blood. It's a process called sanctification where Every day we're in this process of needing to look back up to Jesus and say, yesterday I decided to go play with snakes. Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you heal me? Would you restore me? This is a process of changing. 
I'm not the man I was. I'm not a perfect man, but I'm not the man I was because Jesus is changing things in my life. What's evident of the 50% of people who've prayed that prayer is that there's not change. What's evident of those who walk in and walk out and who aren't changing, it's a pretty good bet. They're not looking to Jesus, but to themselves. See, because if later today I was walking down the road, let's say I was walking down the highway, I got a flat tire, walking down the highway, 75 miles an hour, you get a tractor trailer coming by me. That tractor trailer hits me. And in the process of hitting me, do you think I'm going to come back up here next week and just be totally normal? Like, do you think I'm just going to walk it off like nothing happened? If I got hit at 75 miles an hour by a tractor trailer, no. I'm going to walk different. I'm going to talk different. I'm going to act different. I'm going to have some skid marks on me if I survive, right? Because you can't meet a force that great and remain unchanged. So it is true of Jesus. You cannot meet his love. You cannot meet his grace. You cannot meet his power. You cannot meet his forgiveness. You cannot meet his redemption and go, meh, I'm unchanged. It's going to leave a mark on your life. And some of us have grown dull in our understanding and observation of his love for us. And we've begun to just grow callous to it. But I hope today that you are reignited to understand who Jesus is. I hope if you've never met Jesus that today you see your need for him. And tell you, it feels a whole lot better than getting hit with a tractor trailer. But you'll be different. You'll be the kind of different you've always hoped for. The kind of different you've always longed for. The worship team's going to play a song. I'd, I'd invite you just to stay seated. Just listen. Maybe you need to pray that God would just remind you of his beauty this morning. Maybe you need to spend some time and consider if it's time for you to follow Jesus. See, the question for you that I want you to wrestle with and I want you to walk out having a confident answer in this morning is this. Do you have the marks of saving faith? Do you have the marks of saving faith? You don't have to walk out this door wondering. You can know.